Hey, what's up, homosexuals? Uh, you are listening to You Saved My Life, um, a podcast where we're going to be flipping through the annals of queer theory and traveling through time and space to collect anecdotes, relics, and visions that shape our queer present and break ground on our queer futures. Um, I'm your host, Phoenix Danger. Mm, I'm not an expert or professor of anything, really. Um, I have a great undergrad degree. But the reason I'm saying that is because you don't have to have any kind of degree to engage with queer theory, which is why I'm here and also maybe why you are here. Today, we're going to be talking about Heather Love uh, and her 2007 release, uh, Feeling Backward. So Heather Love is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. It's actually relatively hard to find out stuff about her online, which I'm sure is intentional and also I'm a little bit envious of because I feel like if you Googled me right now, you could just see where I was sitting. But what her her bio says is that her main areas of study are pretty varied now that I'm looking at them. And so what she's got listed on her professor bio is that uh, her main her main areas of study include comparative social stigma, compulsory happiness, transgender fiction, spinster aesthetics, reading methods in literary studies, and the study of deviance. Um, and so I really feel like all of that is going to be coming into our discussion. So before we go on to uh, talking about the literature a little bit more, um, I will say the other thing that I was able to find about Heather Love was her description of her sort of like uh, childhood and adolescent years, uh, which she describes as um, having had the typical queer kid experience. Uh, And what this means for her is that she says, I thought I would never be in a relationship. I thought I would never have sex, but I didn't have a frame to make sense of my experience. I don't know. I mean, like that really that really resonates with me. And I think it's super interesting because, you know, like a big focus in feeling backwards is reflecting on false progress narratives that have been sort of like spun out, you know, kind of. Uh, like in the time frame of between it's Stonewall, gay people were just invented. Uh, we go forward a couple of years now. We're all married to each other, and you know it's it's hard because this narrative is very much fed to us as progress, as accomplishment, bargaining with the state for. I yeah, bargaining with the state for. I guess, civil rights and, like, recognition of our personhood, which definitely leaves a lot to be desired. And so even though Heather Love is... How old are you, Heather Love? Okay, now I'm accidentally running a background check on her. I'm sorry. Um, Okay, whatever. Heather Love's older than I am. I would probably guess by maybe, I don't know, like, 10 years, almost, you know, the span of, like, half a generation or so. And she's describing her queer childhood and her queer adolescence yeah so like 10 years before mine took place she's also from the south she's from louisville and i grew up right outside of new york city and came out in like 2006 began to come out in 2006 aka began to hate myself as a gay person in 2006 um because i also thought that i would never be in a relationship i thought that i 
I didn't think I would ever have to have sex. I was like, no, 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 we're gay. We have sex. We just like can't have anything else. Right. But I, you know, I would really spend hours by myself agonizing over the fact that at that, that point I hadn't made a choice towards queerness. I felt like queerness had made a choice towards me and I was angry about it. I could only foresee a life of loneliness rejection and just you know like pain and unfairness I was really disturbed because I felt like I didn't really know any older gay or queer uh, or trans people you know at the age of 16 which kind of like now that I look back at it it's probably for two reasons you know there's definitely a tendency for people to want to keep queer adults away from children one, because of like, quote unquote, protecting the kids. And then two, because you don't want to give the kids the idea that you can grow up and be queer and like be alive and, you know, be thriving in any way. And then the other reason that I probably didn't know any queer people was because, I don't know, like my parents were straight, all the other people around, like all the other adults around me are straight. And now as an adult queer person, I know that we don't have straight friends. And so like, I guess that's also why I didn't see any queer people. Anyway, the point is I didn't like in all of this, like, anger and like self-hatred and depression I didn't realize that what I was actually having was a queer adolescent experience like I thought that I was experiencing something totally unique to me and like sadness that was unique to me and despair that was unique to me because if you don't witness and and hear other people's stories it, it does become convincing that like your despair is unique to you and on top of that that it's also somehow your fault. Um, so actually, that's a great transition because we're, what we're going to talk about right now is something called affect theory. Affect theory has been around in the academy for about 20 years now. And despite that, it is extremely hard to find a singular definition of what affect theory might be. And I think that that is probably due to sort of like the inherent slipperiness of its nature. Let's refer back to our last episode with Eve Sedgwick, um, because I think that the ideas of um, epistemology and of affect are really sort of almost almost two sides of the same coin. Um, because like, as I talked about in our previous episode, um, epistemology is the, the making of academic fact. It's taking observations um, feelings, um, thoughts that would be described as like personal or subjective. It begins to gather concrete facts that support the evidence of those feelings and the legitimacy of those feelings and then almost turns it into like a legitimate social science or something like that. And so affect theory is kind of like the part that's, you know, like hiding under the rock, um, which is still saying feelings and emotion and like, you know, feelings aren't necessarily subjective. I, I don't know if I could totally say that they're objective, but I think that what affect theory is saying is that studying these feelings or like the, the phenomenon of generational feeling or feeling within an identity category is not only legitimate, but also um, it's also structural. So the way that Heather Love frames her vision of thought in Feeling Backward is by sort of referring to queer 
or not queer, but like, I guess, gay and lesbian political progress through reverse discourse, um, which she also refers to as backwardness. And so what she's saying is, on the one hand, there have been a number of neoliberal forms of gay, quote unquote, freedom that we have, I guess, also, quote unquote, enjoyed. It's interesting, like I said, having grown up coming out at the age of 16 um, in 2006, it was literally like I just was like, all right, like I just have to go throw all of my like heteronormative dreams out of the window, like goodbye to my husband, goodbye to my children, goodbye to my parents. I don't know, like goodbye to a lot of uh, sort of like heterosexual family bonds um, that like I hadn't even been that invested in, but that I recognized that I was promised and thus felt sort of like this sense of deprivation that I hadn't hadn't asked for. And I would have never imagined that 10 years later, I would not only be like thriving and not sorry for it as a queer person, but also that like, I wouldn't really give a shit whether or not queer and trans people are allowed to serve in the military, you know? And so on the other side, okay, so like on one side of that, yes, we have quote unquote progress. We have quote unquote freedom. We have an extended set of rights um, larger than it used to be. On the other hand, it's like what we see is that that these things like are not inherently ours. Like they are not, even though they're available, they're not like the birthright of every of every queer or trans person who like is in the world. These things like do come at a price of our sort of like compromised subjectivity, um, our compromised humanity the only way that we can like take advantage of and make use of these so-called victories are by forgetting huge parts of ourselves and not just ourselves and our own personal histories, but also our, our longer collective history um, around queerness, around transness. And so here we can see that the idea of progress is actually also tied up with um, the ideas of shame and oppression and secretiveness because if we are ever to sort of like move forward as respectable gay people, we have to say that like the state of our crisis and the threats that may face um, our well-being and lives no longer exist in the present and they only exist in the past um, because that makes for a very, um, a very neat, a very neat timeline, like before we were repressed and now we're free. But the truth of it is, of course, much, much more, much more complicated as pretty much like any, any sort of like linear division of time or like any before or after framing or more complicated than any you know, any binary would be. And so like what, what the truth of the matter actually is, is that yes, queer people are visible. Queer people like queerness is like not necessarily a death sentence, but what's actually happening is that we're still very much under the spell of, of bad feelings, sadness, longing, um, envy, loneliness, 
And these are things that, like, as a 27-year-old, like, queer, non-binary person, like, in New York City, I still feel frequently. And so, of course, we can see how those feelings would persist through, like, time and space and, like, creating bad feelings almost as their own type of legacy um and it's a legacy that is very institutionally preserved and I think that what Heather Love is the most scared of is that we will forget that those bad feelings are impressed upon us by um institutions who like institutions that like very frankly do not care um whether we live or die and we will forget that our experiences our affective experiences actually are quite collective like if we forget the sadness and like the bad feeling of our collective queer experience um we can be fooled into thinking um that a rights-based discourse is not only what will like what will ensure freedom but like also in fact happiness in following this line of thinking, Heather Love is is not only pulling from the ideas of um, heterosexuality's vision of what homosexuality should be, or uh, is not is not pulling simply from ideas of politicians who are sort of like taking advantage of uh, of the of the gay moment, as it were. She's also talking about sort of like referring back to the earlier times of queer theory when critics were looking at representations of like gay and lesbian and like gender non-conforming people in um in media most often literature um i think maybe as i had mentioned last uh last episode queer theory actually did did rise out of um literary criticism and so especially earlier on in the development of the field you're going to see you're going to see like lit crit being the main frame of like the way that queer theorists are talking. And so basically like what the queer theorists are saying at this point um, or at like the earlier point of development is like, okay, so obviously there are some sorts of gender and like sexuality non-conforming figures in our literary history, but what should we do about it? So the critics that Heather Love is responding to um are those who are dealing with the question while developing uh, the field of queer theory, which is that, should we explore the link between homosexuality and loss, or should we set about proving that it does not exist? Heather Love sort of takes, um, you know, like takes this almost as a shock or like as an affront. What I really like about her work is that instead of like shitting on the work that came before her she actually sort of like almost puts herself back into asking that question and not treating it as if it's an obvious question but rather like setting out to prove that this sense of loss is true i think that love takes a really good selection of like historical queer works where it's like to the point where like the collection of them almost has like this sense of humor to it she she's taking this literature that comes from um the late 1800s to the early uh the early 1900s and what her aim here is is to reach out to these queer acting or gender non-conforming subjects of the past I mean, kind of seeing, I guess, what they have to tell us. 
And I really, really, like, again, I really like her selection of who she put in here. Yeah, she focuses on the American writer Willa Cather, who was a virulently uh, homophobic homosexual. She was a very homophobic person who had relationships with women. She also talks about Radcliffe Hall, uh, who is a British author, um, most famously known for her novel, The Well of Loneliness, um, which I think probably gives you some of an idea of where Heather Love is going with all of this. Another pick of hers, who I like, is Sylvia Townsend Warner, um, who is also a British novelist whose work in uh, in Feeling Backward is discussed like in relationship to a lot of different types of politics at the time, particularly uh, one scene in which one of her characters is basically like, all right, well, I am gay and my lover is dead, so I guess all we have left is communist revolution. I think that probably you yourself can sort of identify queer people that you know who may fit into one of these three types of queer people. Uh, And so, you know, like, that's very much just to say that in a lot of ways, very little has changed. You know, one of the reasons that it's important to know that very little has changed. So the reason that Heather Love sort of like rolls out first this this narrative of false progress and then rolls out sort of like these very very different perspectives about being queer in the past is is to show us that there is not necessarily a progress narrative like to be had um, between queers of the past and like queers of the present. Again, you know, this progress narrative is like, we used to be ashamed and now and now we're proud. You know, like what love is really taking from it is like looking at these queer experiences of like the late 1800s and mid 1900s and really just like laying bare the sense of tragedy and like the sense of loss and the sense of desperation and not saying, oh, aren't you glad that's over? But instead saying, don't you feel that too? So what Love does in her, uh, in in this work in particular, she examines this dialogue that queer people of the present make or have with queer people of the past when we when we see them suffering, when we see them in times of loneliness, when we see them moments before they're about to end their own lives, we want to say, if only you had lived at this time, like if only you could be part of our queer present, if only I as a reader in 2017 can reach back into the past and 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 pull you into a more liberated present, then you won't have to be so sad. You know, what Love is saying is that we take for granted the idea that these people do want to be helped by us, um, that they do want to be pulled out of the sadness that arises from being a communist lesbian in the 1920s. And like the assumption is that they that they would be thankful, that they would be grateful, that they would be excited. But the reality is, is that we have almost no good reason to claim that they would be better off here. Where we think we are is sort of like in an enlightened modern place, but where we actually are is much, much, much closer to where they are. 
our oppression these days is filtered largely through like a modern bureaucracy that like gives us certain rights while demanding that we like comply with certain standards of what homosexuality can be like overlaid with a template of heterosexuality. The way that we are similar to these characters is that we feel shame. I don't know. I mean, like, this is something that I've been grappling with a little bit. I, like I said, sort of, like, have had the, like, universal, like, queer um, adolescent experience. That experience of sadness and, like, queer loneliness started in high school and, like, sort of, like, the self-hatred started in high school. I became very sort of, like, indignant about it. And once I moved, like, to a different city for college... I basically like built everything in my life around being around being queer. The jobs I took, the friends I had, the the courses, the courses I took in school, the books that I read for pleasure and I'm now talking to you about right now. I had made for myself like this world and all these ways in which, you know, like my security around my own queerness like wasn't to be sort of like challenged or questioned or um, invaded but the problem is you know it is a bubble and it's very I don't know can a bubble be vulnerable it's a vulnerable bubble easily easily popped more than once this week my queerness has been like weirdly like awkwardly identified by straight people like like to me um and I guess I don't know if that makes sense but I guess I'll just give some examples which is like one that my partner and I were like kissing goodbye outside of a coffee shop and I heard this man behind her making making kissy sounds I looked up at him and just like looked him in the eye just like angrily and like sadly and like I don't even know what the fuck my face looked like at that point but whatever my face looked like he just smiled back like he just gave like the hugest fucking smile back and as this was happening and like as like as we were about to like say something about it um the barista from like from this cafe is like getting back from his break and also makes a rude comment about us kissing and you know, it's not these ideas of, like, someone being outright homophobic or someone, you know, like, calling us dykes or, like, threatening us physically. You know, it's, like, a moment that seems, like, definitely offensive but, like, pretty benign in, in, in the larger scale of things. And yet, despite that, like, for the rest of the day, like, I really walked around just, like, feeling ashamed for being queer. And, like, that feeling of otherness really, really being instilled in me and just feeling like so fucking embarrassed that my gayness um was being engaged with and pointed out and like talked about rudely to my face and I actually now that I'm like thinking about it um and reflecting on it wondering if that was sort of like myself letting my guard down and sort of like letting myself fall into that queer progress narrative of like it's this year and in this place and like I can't believe this is still happening you know if you can't believe that this is still happening like I think you need to be like why you know like why do I think why do I think that it's unbelievable that this is still happening 
And while that experience like didn't necessarily like drown me in the well of loneliness, it certainly had much, much, much more power over me than I, I would have preferred at all. And so when we're reaching back to these characters, um, these figures, these authors of the past, we find sometimes that there is that refusal to be redeemed. There's that refusal to be pulled into the present. It kind of becomes, like the question doesn't really become, is this element of loss legitimate? It becomes like this element of loss is legitimate and like now we must live with this injury rather than attempting to fix it. You know, like I think for a lot of people sort of like across any sort of political spectrums, like the idea of living with uh, with injury and living with loss rather than fixing it seems like an almost impossible demand. But I think something that love is getting at is that it's not an impossible demand. It's like the only demand. Because if we do, in fact, desire to move forward, it would be impossible to do that without considering how much we're still living in some parts of the past. Love refers to sort of like these political criticisms of um, of negative affect. She She talks about how looking backward is seen as... Um, kind of like almost morally reprehensible and then also as like an invitation to one's own destruction um, which is what that person deserves so uh, Heather Love refers to um, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his wife who always is referred to as Lot's wife but I actually googled it earlier and it turns out that her name is Edith so what's up Edith yeah, so Lot and his wife Edith are fleeing the burning town of sin that they had previously inhabited. And God is like, don't look back. And Edith is like, oh, uh, but like, you know, I know that it was like a city of sin, but you know, like, it's my home. Like, I really had some good times there. Like, maybe I can just like look back at it one more time. And um, for those who are familiar, Edith is turned into a pillar of salt, um, never to go forward, never to go back, um, but in fact, to stand as a warning to those who might be tempted to look backwards, um, to tell us the idea, to give us the idea that there is nothing, nothing for you back there and that there can only be loss. But also since it was like Christian God, there was like also a punishment, you know, and so, you know, all, all that is to say that there's like a political fear that if we look back, you know, the idea of our progress actually is unfounded. Part of the reason that sort of like there's political criticism around accepting um, these ideas of discomfort is because like the actual emotions um, that are named in feeling backwards are not ones that are like positive or like political or like the types of feelings that make people want to resist so in the in the realm of non-political feelings we're talking about depression we're talking about you know like i said earlier we're talking about loss we're talking about longing fear dread emotions that are thought of as like, I guess, unproductive. Like, I think about my experiences and the 
experiences of like other other queer and trans people in my life and I think about what a struggle it is um only to remain alive it's like when you see like people involved in political movements sort of like condemning these non-political like non-action like non-productive feelings it's just like like who the fuck cares because like what happens then is that it's like this farce of productive feeling in like which my depression is only allowed to manifest as rage and like protest and political organizing and not as like sleeping until 2 p.m. It becomes a lie that I have to again like another thing that I have to survive like another thing that I'm being told is wrong and not productive and harmful when I think about the types of movements that I would potentially want to be involved in you know, it's like, I want to be involved as a whole, like as the whole of myself, you know, like because of my experiences and like, because of trauma, anger is not a feeling that's actually accessible to me. And not only is it not accessible, but like, because it's not accessible, like I have no idea how it could be transformed into anything that would be called productive. Um, I'm actually not concerned with being productive when I'm like expressing even like my anger or frustration at the difficulties of surviving like materially and emotionally on the day to day. I actually don't want to be in a movement that doesn't address directly and make room for the deep sadness that fills like many, if not most of my days. I don't want anything as simplistic as that. I don't want anything that sees my feelings of sadness and says we must remove that. Um, These are feelings of the past and we're in the present. But obviously these feelings, not only do they exist, but like often they become the overarching um, affect of a queer and trans people who I know and like who I love and share space and time um, and intimacy with, um, you know, it is like we are a people afflicted by this. And to sort of like posit, to posit pride as the opposite of that or to posit pride as the, I don't know, as the end goal almost um, is like so far from like my actual lived experiences that it just like feels like a slap in the face. What I what I don't want is a movement that has a before and after. I like I don't want it to be before we were sad and isolated and now we're prideful. Um I don't want a movement that so disregards the continuation of the struggles of the past into the struggle of the present. Like, if that is to be progress at all, it's, like, progress uh, that benefits only a few and, like, leaves the rest of us behind. I want a movement where, or, like, I want a discussion or I want a space where these negative feelings are not only acknowledged but also prioritized because I think that individual affect or, like, individual mental mental illness or... um 
sort of like individual pain is is not individual. It is the affective force of our queer generation. The basic problem isn't that I'm sad because I haven't, like that I can't be included in certain like government or capitalist or like whatever institutions because I'm queer. The reason that I'm sad is because the historical grief that I carry and that we carry hasn't been resolved. And until we begin to reckon with that, it's time to accept that there is no true progress narrative. So I'm going to close with a poem by Lucille Clifton. I mean, speaking of sadness in institutions, I read this poem for the first time when I was in a psychiatric hospital earlier this year. My partner slipped this into something that she gave me, and I had a little, like, makeshift altar in the psych hospital, which, like, obviously wasn't as glamorously decorated as one's own personal altar might be, um, partially because they do not allow you to have um, candles and sharp crystals uh, in the psych hospital, but you can have a piece of paper with a poem on it, and the poem goes like this. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Thanks for listening. You Save My Life was recorded and produced in the Mask FM studio. If you'd like to support our network, visit www.patreon.com slash maskfm. Thank you.